Welcome to the CDC Podcast, episode 35. With me this time is video producer and critic Chris Franklin, known for his YouTube series, Errant Signal. Hello. So, originally, Errant Signal started as your blog slash website back in 2009, and the video series was almost a secondary purpose to it. Can you, like, give us the rundown of that early part? Um, I mean, the, before... I really had the video series going. The website was basically a repository for any random idea I had. It was basically a place to put up, you know, random blog posts and rants that I had, or I had a couple video game experiments that were completely unfinished, but I put them up anyway. And it was a while before I really started making it more focused just on the video content. It was a while before the video content even existed, really. Yeah, yeah, Errant Signal, the earliest post was 2009, and the first video, Deus Ex Invisible War, was 2011. Yeah, so it was like two years, I think. And uh, what drove, not drove you, but pushed you into creating the video content? Frankly, it was just, I was at a time where I was watching a lot of other video content, and I enjoyed a lot of it, and ended up thinking, you know, especially at the time I was seeing this emergence of... I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this in a way that isn't kind of embarrassing. But basically, I was watching a lot of, like, nostalgia critic-y, angry video game nerdy stuff. And there was a slow emergence of a little bit more of a critical voice to a lot of that stuff. You know, your, your Lindsay Ellis's, your Kyle Calgren's. And I, I realized that there wasn't really that, at least at the time, there wasn't really much of something like that for video games. And I thought, I could fill that role. And started trying to basically do this weird hybrid of, like, goofy, channel-awesome-style comedy videos with slightly informed criticism, and it was a weird time. <laughs> yeah, your earlier videos are, like, full of those reviewer tropes of that era. Yeah, and it it is something I am not super proud of at this point. <laughs> <laughs> For anyone who may not know, that's, like, cutaway gags, talking head in front of a white wall, fake anger... Yeah, it, it, like, all, all the all the worst things you can do at this point, I, I, I did pretty much all of them. And the worst thing was I, I did it intentionally. Like, I, I would write an essay about, like, I really feel strongly about this video game this way. And then I would look at my script and go, oh, my God, there's three paragraphs without a joke here. No one's going to watch this. And I would, like, shoehorn in these awful, awful, unfunny, cringy jokes. And it's just, yeah, that was that was a bad time. It goes away with your Half-Life episode. And there's still some in the Half-Life episode. There's that there's that terrible Cheers joke that goes on way too long. But, um, well, that's what it was like the last gas because, as you said, on a, you actually did a commentary. Oh yeah, that's right. On that episode. Yeah, that was that was about the point I realized that maybe I didn't need the jokes. Maybe the commentary itself was enough. Yeah, and I'm glad I made that decision and I've stuck with it ever since. At the time, did you feel like they weren't working out as you intended, but you just kept going because that's what you were supposed to do? Uh, at the time, I, part of it is is like you know that the, the concept that I had no idea that I didn't know how bad I was until I could put some distance between the episodes I had made and myself. Like by the time the Half Life episode came out, I think I had been doing the show for something like six months, and I was like. Oh, let's see how far I've come in six months. And I went back and watched, and I realized just how cringeworthy all those jokes were. And then I looked at the current stuff, and I realized I'm not getting any better. I am I am not a funny person, 
and it's actively detracting from a lot of the points I want to make, and I think the points are more interesting and more important than this this shtick, because the shtick is not it's not funny, and it's also what everyone else has been doing. You know, like, I, I could be an angry video game raw guy, but that's just, you know, I'd be the 150th YouTuber doing ah angry YouTube videos, and I just had no interest in doing that. So, as you went on, because you were still putting yourself in front of the camera for quite some time, were you comfortable with that, or was that just how you felt you needed a person in front of the camera? Uh, a bit. Of, it was a combination of things. Part of it was that it was, I felt that I needed to, you know, have a, a face in front of the show, that I needed, I needed to have a, I don't know if a brand or a character, I don't, that, talking it that way is just makes me feel gross, but it, it felt like it needed to be coming from me in some sense, and not just a disembodied voice. And also, that was sort of the style that I originated in, is again, that channel awesome, you know, show up on screen, say some stuff, overact, get angry, and then have it cut away to a thing that is either funny or helps you make your point. And as I got rid of the jokes, I realized that I didn't need to be on screen so much, because the only reason I was on screen was to sell the overacting, and the episodes tended to flow much better. The other reason I cut out appearing on screen myself is that it... uh, First of all, I'm not exactly the most photogenic guy in the world. But on top of that, it, it is a much more difficult process of filming. Because right now I can do what I'm doing now, which is speaking of a microphone, and if I stutter or forget a line or stop in the middle of a sentence for an awkward pause, I can edit that out. But if it's done in video, suddenly there's a jump cut in the middle of my speech, and it looks really weird if you're looking at me and then I teleport away, like it's a blog. And I didn't want that to be part of the style, so I was memorizing entire paragraphs, and I tend to go on forever like I'm doing now. And that just it just didn't work. I would be like editing multiple times in a single take and it would just look really jarring and jump cutty and I decided to just cut myself out of the whole thing. That last one was Max Payne 3, 2012. Yeah. And so you've been the disembodied voice ever since. Yeah, I mean, I, I at this point, um, YouTube production is so much more expensive and so much nicer that a lot of that do-it-yourself aesthetic has gone away. You know, at the time, in 2011, I was competing with, you know, other people doing it in their garage. Now there's people, you know, Angry Joe has the big fancy green screen, and, uh, you know, everyone has nice professional lighting rigs and boom mics. It would cost a fair bit of money to set up a, an environment like that, and not just not just cost money, but also I'd have to make it look nice. I'd have to have a, a some kind, and I'd have to figure out what, what does a set for errant signal look like. I, I don't know. And so, yeah, I, I just, I, I stepped away from it. And, and went to a disembodied voice. I guess we can get into your process, but what is the process for creating a video of Aaron Signal? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> uh, arduous. Basically, I mean, most of it is just, just writing. Like, that's the bulk of it, is, is it's just basically film criticism put to, or film game criticism put to uh, spoken word over video game stuff. So it's, it's mostly a writing process, but it, it starts with having played a game Hopefully a game I recorded playing the first time through, because I hate replaying games just to get footage. It's the most terrible thing. <laughs> but I guess the process would be, basically, I play a game and arrive at a point where I realize I actually have something to say about it, positive, negative, uh, just an interesting take that no one else has, and then, you know, sit down and, and write it out, and then record it and edit it, edit the audio altogether, so it's basically a, a 10-minute long spiel and then put footage on top of that and so that's it's it's very linear it's it's not a super interesting process it is very much play game write about game record me talking about the thing i wrote 
and then layer footage on top of that. The only downside is if I didn't record footage the first time through, after writing my script, sometimes I have to go back and do footage capture, and that is kind of painful sometimes. Do you ever try and match the footage to what is being said or oh, look out for specific footage? Yes, that that's one of the things that makes it so time-consuming. I've tried to become a little bit more lax as time has gone on about that sort of thing, but I try to match the footage on screen in some way to what is being said. At one point, I was it was almost like a jump cut every sentence, and it was just way too much information to the point where... You couldn't even process it, not in a good way, but just in a, you know, jump cut, jump cut, jump cut, jump cut, jump cut. These days, I, I just try to focus on sort of a, a, an area of the gameplay that relates to what I'm saying. But yeah, I do focus on making sure that the, the editing is really important to me, and I try to make sure the footage being shown at least in some way reflects what I'm saying. That gets a little weird when I start dealing with abstract concepts, and really the game has no way of representing those. Then I either fall back to, you know, those slideshow-y cuts, or I just... I just let the game footage roll, and and that's mostly just me being lazy because I can just in Premiere take the footage that I already have and stretch it out and cover the next forty five seconds of speech, and yay, I have forty five seconds of edited video done. Speaking as someone who does a lot of audio editing themselves, how do you like work the audio? Do you ever have to edit or adjust pacing because there are certain, I guess you could say there are different expectations for how we perceive video on YouTube than we perceive it elsewhere? I don't know if I do anything for YouTube in particular. I do know that I write for the spoken word, which is not something that um, I think a lot of other game writers do, just because they usually write like articles. And, and in, a, in a sense, that's bad, because I don't think I could successfully pitch myself almost anywhere, because uh, you know, a real editor would take one look at this and go, this is, this is awful. This is like you just talking to me. But I write that way intentionally for the videos because I know I'm going to actually have, uh, going to, I'm going to have to actually speak the words. And like I just flubbed, I would need to be able to, you know, actually say them. Now that you said you flubbed, yeah. I can't edit it out. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. But aside from that, I do a lot of, a lot of editing of basically me if I screw up saying a word or whatever, uh, that has to be edited together. All the usual edits, all, all the usual audio editing stuff, but I don't think I take any, from a technical perspective, I don't th think I take any interesting steps. I basically just record straight from uh, a Yeti mic into, into Audacity, and then at the end of the whole thing, do a noise cancellation, bring that in to Premiere, then do some audio balancing on that, and if I you know, screw anything up, try to cut the uh, sound together so it doesn't sound weird. Uh, the reason I ask is, and this is the uh, first interview in this video series where I've actually talked to an essayist. Prior to this, it was several variations of like the pre-criticism videos. Mm -hmm. And the conversation that came up, and I realized I should probably add it to my uh, repertoire of questions, was about the pacing of spoken word because of, of like uh, recent video reviews that have come that came out, specifically a certain one on Batman vs Superman, and how some people found it way too fast into staccato and that it was overwhelming. I get that a lot. I it is a problem that I acknowledge with my videos mostly because I hate the process of recording audio. Um uh I you can hear it in my voice. I'm I'm I go um and uh and I stutter a lot and it's it's an unfortunate tick and I sound way more professional in the videos in part because um I edit it properly and make myself sound smarter than I am, but also because I'm consciously trying to slow myself down. And if I can slow myself down, then I can actually find the right words and I sound like an intelligent human being like I do right now. 
But if I let myself go, then I start talking really, really fast like this, and that you can hear that a lot in the videos where I'm just talking at the speed I can read, and I acknowledge that that is a serious problem. It's one that I've tried to work on, and, and it really kind of sucks that, that I haven't been able to really teach myself to read slowly and enunciate properly, and it's something I definitely need to work on. There is like a difference between being able to enunciate properly and being understood versus just simply going slower. The point I was making was that there almost felt like the people talking on Twitter it was uh, Nick Capazello, whose name I still can't pronounce correctly, and others about uh, like almost a generational divide between the expectations of how fast someone speaks. Like your videos, they sound normal to me. That sounds that's the speed at which a audio essay is read at mm-hmm. to me. But to many others, it feels rather fast. And I was wondering if you could comment on that. Just, I mean, I, I don't know how objectively I can look at my own stuff uh, in that sense. I do know that most YouTube video, there have been essays written about how you know YouTube has a very specific aural aesthetic the way people speak on YouTube, the the sort of inflections that they use. And it's not just, you know, the sort of the catchphrases like, you know, be sure to like, subscribe, and whatever. It's also just the way they talk, the sort of optimistic, slight upturn at the end of sentences sort of thing. So I do think maybe there is something to that. I, I don't have any evidence of it, but I, I've certainly heard it discussed. And the other the other main thing that I uh, did this series on was the ideas is what unique pr- process or element does the video add to the criticism like you say you write as a particular speaking style but what does the video add to it one of the things it does is it lets me especially when talking about gameplay systems in the abstract show those systems in a way that i think text sometimes often struggles with so instead of saying that you know this system works this way, let me spend half a paragraph explaining it to you, I can either you know, use a little diagram or pictogram and, and show a little graphic and show you what the system is, or I can just show the gameplay running. And while I'm talking about you know, this system promotes this and this and this behavior, you can actually see that behavior being played out while I'm speaking, which I think helps make your argument stronger and also lets you cut out a fair bit of having to stop, the, and stop talking about the game and talk about just the system to make your point. Otherwise, you end up with criticism that ends up being it can be somewhat insular in the sense that, you know, you can pop into a lot of my videos that, you know, if you don't care about spoilers and see me talking about how a system works and get it without playing the game. Whereas I think if you pop into a game that is, or pop into an essay about say, I don't know, just cause three and they start talking about how cool it is that the, I don't know, the grapple hook or whatever lets you do all this cool stuff. It's not quite as visual. You have to sort of internalize what it is they're talking about and kind of infer how that might be, how that system might work or how it might be fun. And I think visuals let you see that a lot better. And in narrative perspectives, sometimes I've noticed you let the game run just during those narrative moments because it's almost a form of quoting. Yes. Yeah, definitely. No, I mean, it, it definitely is basically a form of quoting, and I arguably abuse that, but it is something that I really like doing, being able to cite the game directly and not only cite the game by quoting the words, but you get the intonation of the actors, you get the framing of the video, uh, you get whatever other gameplay is going on around it. And I think that really helps sort of, especially when you're trying to tear apart what a game is doing, it helps to see it. You know, it, it helps become, you know, in a film class, you don't usually just like, well, in the film classes I've taken anyway, you don't like put the film away in a box somewhere and then just talk about the film hypothetically, you have it up on the screen so you can, you know, show a specific scene and then talk about how it works. And if you're going to analyze a work, especially a visual work, I think it helps to be able to reference the visuals. 
no, that's not to disparage prose. Obviously, there's a, a tremendous amount of, of purely written work that is being done. That's all amazing. But I think having the visuals can be beneficial. And the the video medium lets you just grab onto that readily without having to insert an image into the middle of an article or whatever. Does that make up for the extra work that has to go into it for you? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, that's actually a tough question. It is a lot of overhead to, to make a video versus writing an essay, you know, and because you basically still have to write the essay. It's writing the essay plus footage capture, plus editing, plus encoding, plus uploading, plus promoting the video. And it's just it's it's a lot of effort. That's a tough call. I, I think I do the video stuff more because I like the format and, and it's something that I enjoy doing. I enjoy editing video. But in terms of simply whether rhetorically it works better to sell points, whether it is it is a stronger argument enough to justify the work, I don't know. It's a lot of extra work. You have to actually enjoy editing video, I think, to, to get much out of it. Yeah, I guess on the more cynical side, you could say you'd be more assured that people would see the video than they'd see the written essay. In my case, that's definitely true because I know no one checks the website as much as they check the uh, YouTube channel. I, I guess. I don't know. It's it's tough. Like, it's it's tough out there for a lot of video channels. There are plenty of uh, good criticism uh, channels out there, too, that, you know, don't get very much coverage. Ah, that's weird. Yeah, it's a tough... It, yeah. I was thinking more on the lines that it's easier to sell a video through, like, social media and promotion that way than it is to... Here's a large blob of text. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's definitely true. It's it's easier to, to have something like that go viral than, than a blog post go viral. I, I think, you know, just words, you know, you can do tremendous things with just words, but especially if you're putting it up on a, on a private blog or whatever, it's a lot harder to get, you know, mass numbers of eyeballs, whereas a YouTube video is easily embeddable, it's easily shared on Twitter, it can go viral much more simply than uh, the big blob of text. I feel like I'm going to go back to, like, the, your history here right now. Okay. Because I found you through Blip, the now-defunct video service. Yeah. So I was just wondering, could you comment on, like, what you felt the pros or cons between that versus YouTube were? Sure. Blip had the benefit of basically not being YouTube in the sense that Blip really didn't do the whole content ID thing, which really helped... Basically, in terms of video uh, hosting, when I got started, there was uh, Vimeo, which at the time, and they don't do this so much now, but at the time had basically declared war on most video game videos, primarily because they didn't want to become a let's play only, you know, let's plays eat tons of bandwidth and for a lot of them, and tons of hard drive space, and for a lot of them, you know, each video maybe only gets, you know, 20, 30, 50, 100 views, and that's it for this 45-minute part 75 of 500 of Minecraft playing. And they didn't want to be hosting all that and spending all the money to host and send that data out. So Vimeo basically said no video games. YouTube is saddled with content ID, as everyone knows, and several other problems. What Blip offered was basically the opportunity to have a pseudo-professional space to host a recurring web show. And that was sort of their focus, was... You know, their their big flagship thing was basically like a Dan Rather reports, I think, style show. And then they had all the Channel Awesome people or the majority of Channel Awesome people. And they had a number of other uh, recurring web shows, which was what I was trying to build anyway. And they had no content ID and none of the matching problems or DMCA takedowns that, that YouTube had. That was the good part of Blip. You didn't have to deal with MCNs, multi-channel networks, which at the time when I got started was the only way you could get paid on YouTube. I don't know how the how that works now. But 
basically those were the good things. You were no matter what going to get paid, and it was a site basically dedicated to the format I was working in. The downside for Blip is that not a lot of people went to Blip at all. Even towards the end, no one would go to, to, to my Blip videos. And those were the ones I put on my website for a long time. I went back recently and switched all the links out from uh, Blip links to YouTube links because Blip just straight up doesn't exist anymore. Thank you for that, by oh. the way. It's simplified having to change the links on our end at critical distance. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> but but like the, the, what I ended up seeing was basically I would post a video on YouTube and you know within a couple days or a week, I might have 10,000 or 15,000 views. And at the end of the week on Blip, I might have 150. Like, it, it is literally multiple orders of magnitude off in terms of the audience. And that was really the problem, was that if you could get, you know, if you could get featured on their main page, or if you could build enough of your own audience the way Channel Awesome managed to, then you were going to be fine. But Blip didn't do a lot of connective tissue like YouTube does of the, hey, you watch this video, you would maybe like would, would like this video. They didn't do anything like that. And the result was basically just you had to find, you had to self-promote, and I was awful at that, and nobody ended up going to Blip. So I think, you know, a ridiculously small minority of people ever watched any of my stuff on Blip. But it was where I started posting all my stuff first because I was afraid of Content ID and because that was where everyone else was. That was the format I was working in. YouTube is pretty much the only game left in town at this point. I know some people have moved to Vimeo, especially now that they're a little bit more lax with the game stuff, but YouTube still has that audience. The audience for YouTube is ridiculously massive and dwarfs every other audience on every other video sharing platform. Speaking of all the problems, now that they've been highlighted recently with the shaky campaign of where's the fair use and other examples. Have you ever personally come into conflict with the DMC takedowns and content ID uh, program crawlers? None illicitly. I've never had a DMCA takedown. I've never had any company say, screw you, we're taking your thing down via an actual DMCA notice. The only other one, the only other content flag, content ID flag that I'm aware of that I know I had was uh, another early video where I was playing fast and loose with copyright law, even more than I, I guess I do now, which was the uh, Far Cry 2 episode. I used music from, of all things, the movie Congo, based off the Michael Crichton book, and who I think Sony or whoever owns the rights to that music eventually found that and uh, put a claim on there, and I, I don't think I have that video monetized. I think they get money from that now. But it's legit. I, I'm not going to contest it. I mean, I could, but it's not even it's not even a video about Congo or about or about that song. So I'm I'm not even going to contest it. They're, they can take that money. So I've I've never run into serious problems with it. But I I know enough people who have through various means, both you know personally and also just sort of know them on the internet. That uh, I know it's a serious problem that still you know YouTube's yet to really resolve. In the history of like you're creating videos, we like pointed out the major changes of your styles, the, the running out of jokes, the Half-Life video, the last time you showed up on camera was Max Payne 3. But like, how, did you, how do you feel like you've evolved your style as a, as a critic over the years doing the videos? Style-wise, I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this. I mean, one thing I know that has changed since I started, since back in the day, is that I am way, way, way less likely to cast judgment on developers or make ridiculous proclamations about things that I don't know for sure, that I don't have a leak or a source or a interview I can quote or a news article I can cite. I mean, if you go back and watch the uh, the Mirror's Edge episode, I was like, obviously they put gunfights in because the, the game, just EA told them to because EA is jerks, man. 
And, and you know, that's just me. It was, it was a kid. It was stupid. And and I actually had uh, one of the guys from DICE emailed me shortly after that video went up. It was like the first time a game developer ever reached out to me and said, hey, you made a video. That's great. Uh, you realize you're wrong, right? And <laughs> and I was like, what, what do you mean? What, 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 do you, what do you mean I'm wrong? And he was like, you know, EA was nothing but supportive of the game. The, the reason that we have all this gunfight that is completely against, uh, you know, everything else that the game is about is because, you know, we're selling this thing for 60 bucks. It was right around the time the $60 price increase was coming out with the next generation of uh, Xbox 360. And the games, with the combat, the game's like, you know, six and a half hours. If we just let you free run through all the levels, the game would be like four hours. You would run through, you know, millions of dollars in content and be done with it and then complain that it was four hours. There's just no way we can't let you do that. And uh, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And I'm an idiot. Thank you. And that's not the only time that happened. I mean, you could look at, uh, again, back when I was making horrible jokes, the uh, Human Revolution uh, video where I'm, like, complaining about the boss fights, about how, and I make this awful, awful cornball joke about how, uh, you know, IDOS Montreal or whatever are, are werewolves because it's, like, a completely different set of people did this. And, like, two weeks later, it comes out that, yeah, a completely different set of developers made the boss fights. And, you know, I've got egg on my face now making this joke at the expense of the developers when it was completely not their fault. Well, at least not within the, you know, management's fault, but not, not the developers. And, yeah, I've, I've learned over time not to make proclamations from on high about how what, what clearly went wrong in a thing that I have no idea what to do with. And it's one of the reasons that, like, if you watch my more recent stuff, you know, Destiny and Thief and other games that are clearly broken, but we don't know why they're broken, I, I advocate for, you know, more transparency and being able to see what happened. So instead of having to have angry YouTuber guy say clearly what he think went wrong... Uh, you know, I want to be able to have a conversation about what did go wrong. What what went wrong in Thief? How did that game end up with 18 storylines, none of which get resolved or, you know, don't just drop off a cliff? Or uh, Destiny, how did the story start and then, you know, basically get abandoned to the point where you almost have this weird, awkward tone piece in place of a, of a game with a narrative? So, yeah, that's, that's I think, one of the bigger things that I, that's changed in my overall uh, approach to games. Aside from that, it's still largely a work in progress, I think. I think I'm still too mean to some games and still too nice to others. Like, I remember being super generous to uh, Tomb Raider, which in retrospect maybe didn't quite deserve the praise I gave it. And I remember being kind of harsh to a lot of indie games that maybe didn't deserve to be quite so harshly uh, smacked down. Like, The Novelist is still this beautiful game that really resonates with me, and I basically spent half the game going like, but you're a ghost, and it's not very fun. And it... I was going to ask you about like, like your approach to criticism, and then I it took a while to actually track this quote of yours down. <laughs> but I basically had to remember where I had first heard it, and it was, if I can quote you here, Normally when I talk about games, I tend to approach it from one of two general directions. A narrative-focused reading that looks at the plot structure, characters, dramatic arts, and that sort of thing, and a play-focused reading that looks at the mechanical systems and how they interact with one another. Then I try to reconcile the two into a cohesive whole, and one month later, a stork delivers an errant signal episode. Yeah, I don't know if that's still true. I was about to ask, of course, that quote came from the Stanley Parable, in which it was trying to emphasize that it in no way represents this episode. It's and then of course the next one was on Unreal, talking about how it was a tone piece. So yeah, I I suck. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just thinking. I don't think this is accurate anymore. Would you like to comment? On uh, it? it is and it isn't. Like it is accurate insofar as 
I do think I end up talking about game systems and game... Basically what I end up doing is I end up doing sort of this, is the game fun from a formalisty systems designy perspective. I like what this game does because it's clever or because it's engaging or because it feels good. I like talking about that systemsy stuff. But then I also like more traditional game criticism of this game, you know, does this tonally or does this has this really interesting theme or explores this idea or or captures this moment or this emotion or or makes a profound point about this or fails utterly to make a profound point about this, whatever this is. And I like doing those two things, I think where my failure is, is that I fail to bring them together properly. You can see this in the, in the burnout episode, I think that just went up where it was like, let me talk about the open world and how cool it is that it's designed in this really interesting way that facilitates all this cool play. And then let me shoehorn that praise about the, the design into me talking about how it's sort of like toys for adults. And it does this interesting, you know, conceptually, this game is basically toys for adults. And I love that. And the quote you quoted, I think, was me originally basically saying that I approached it as sort of a narrative versus a, a mechanics sort of thing. But I don't think that's true. I think the problem is that I, I sort of ram a a sort of that like, again, a formalisty system Z. I love how this is designed or I hate how this is designed approach up against more traditional criticism that you would see elsewhere. And. I've yet to really reconcile those two, and that's where the, the disconnect comes from. That's where the, the, the logjam comes in. Because I think as, as like critics, all of us have, have, you know, at least the majority of, of game critics and games writers, have started to move on from the sort of systems versus story divide. I, th I think it's clear that, you know, mechanics can tell stories and that, you know, stories are as much a part of the narrative and the metaphor of what's and, and how we're framing the mechanics as anything else, and that those two things aren't really, like, two sides of, of two forces fighting within a game. They're just both parts of the game. And I think that's something that we all have sort of started to grapple with. And so I don't think it's necessarily a, a narrative thing versus a mechanics thing. I think it is this, I have two critical voices in my head. And instead of simply focusing any of my videos on one of the two voices, I end up uh, going off the reservation and just saying both crammed together very awkwardly. And I, it's not a great setup. So yes, I, I guess I guess what I'm saying is yes, I, I still do that thing where I jam the two things together, but I think my framing in your quote isn't really the framing that's the reality of how I'm actually doing it. After the first couple of videos where you focus specifically on like an individual game or or three games in the case of the adaptation video, you then just started a, a series of videos discussing like concepts like kinesthetics, photorealism, fun, gamification. Was it because that you, you felt you had something to say and you were already in the video, video, I guess, uh, ecosystems? That's why you created videos on them? Or was there other some other necessity to step away from, like, close readings that you had done up to that point? Um, I think it, it varies. I think it part of it is that, I mean, I, I do a lot of reading on game design blogs and, and game design books, and I buy all sorts of uh, books about how to talk about games and, and what, you know, this different designers are thinking. And so I, I have all these ideas floating in my head about, you know, how to design games, even though I don't do that very often, which I don't know if that makes me a hypocrite, but whatever. But I have all these ideas about how we – basically, I'm ruining this question – I made those videos primarily because I didn't see anything else like that other than maybe extra credits. And I adore extra credits, but extra credits tends to take more of a industry-focused approach, and I sort of like the more theory-oriented approach, if that makes any sense. 
like gamification is a good example of that, where the extra credits video on gamification is very, yay, let's let's take games and apply them and, and make the world good. And, and my video on gamification is much more, yeah, gamification might not be the, the good thing that the games industry thinks it is. It, it might not be very good at all if you step back and look at it. So I, I kind of wanted to decouple a lot of the theory from, you know, from the traditional industry perspective. Because gamification would be great for, for the games industry, a lot of game designers, if you could just apply game design theory to, you know, making your workers 300% more efficient. But, you know, it, I wanted to be able to not just have the rah-rah go games thing, I wanted to be able to look at it a little bit more critically. You know, same thing with, like, uh, photorealism. Photorealism is something that drives hardware sales, and it's something that, you know, people who make games engines really want to embrace, because obviously every new thing that they're trying to sell is getting us that much closer to that ideal vision of, of photorealism. And you have to step away from, I think, where the money is and just sort of go, yeah, but is it really getting us closer? And, and what is the impact of photorealism on the development process if we step away from just, you know, yay, making games? But yeah, I don't know. I, the other reason is that I did want to kind of step away from just doing close reads of games. I wanted to be able to cover a wide variety of things on the show. I still would like to... I think Aaron Signal is a work in progress. I still think I, I don't know if I wouldn't want to do, you know, other things with it. You know, I'm not going to, like, branch off and start reviewing comic books or whatever. But, you know, if I could maybe do shorter... I've I've continually wanted to do shorter episodes, and I've yet to figure out how to make that work. But I'd love to be able to, for instance, cover small games. Like, And this is something that's been eluding me for a long time. I want to be able to basically re be the opposite of whatever it is, a lot of the rah-rah, let's close off uh, Steam, let's curate Steam, a lot of that. I'd like to be kind of a countervoice to that by maybe, if not advocating for smaller games, maybe simply championing really, really good tiny games. But I don't know how to do that because so, so much of the show right now is based on close reads. And a lot of tiny games don't necessarily support a 10-minute close read. It's just sort of more like, hey, check out this awesome thing. It's like $2, and it's got this one idea distilled down to its purity, and it's really cool, and check it out. And that's not really a criticism thing. That's just more of a you know, Kotaku blog post focused on a very small game, and I, I don't know how to make that you know, a sort of... Critically interesting? Critically interesting, or even video content that people would want to see. You know, I, I can't... It's not going to be an in-depth read, and it's not going to be anything more than, here is a thing, check out this thing. And I think that's something that needs to happen in a context devoid of, you know, angry Let's Players. I mean, that, it's great that Let's Players are covering these sorts of games, but I think we need something a little bit more academic. But what do you think about, because uh, off the top of my head, Extra Credits does their Games You Might Not Have Tried, Occasional Series, and then uh, Super Bunny Hop does games from my from my inbox and both games that he's oh sorry and both of those are, are fantastic and and it's just another area that i was thinking of branching out into but I, I have no plans on how to do that but no i think both of those series are fantastic i watch both of them and i i champion anyone who's willing to pick up more obscure games and sort of give them a fair shot and and say hey this is a really cool thing that i found please take a look and there was a point where was, I want to say it was like 2004 where you, you did that with games like Glitch Hikers, In the Kingdom, Unrest, and I'm not going to continue. I'm not going to that with the entire countdown. That was a weird time for the show for a couple reasons. I That was a weird year. I did try to intentionally – I started going down that road intentionally because I wanted to cover a bunch of uh, indie games. And there was like a that, – that period was basically I think a month where I thought I was doing basically – 
an indie game month, I guess, where every two weeks or so I would I would come out with a, a new indie game that I was covering. The problem is it, it burned me out so bad. Uh, it, it's really hard to do one of these every two weeks, even if it's kind of short. The other problem I ran into, and I especially ran into this in the first half of last year, is if you cover a lot of indie games and only indie games, and you're doing it from kind of a dry, critical perspective, your readership gets flat real fast. I did not grow almost at all in the first half of 2015, simply because I covered a whole lot of indie games in a row. And they weren't necessarily obscure indie games, but my viewership grows so much better if once in a while I cover a Halo and I just go, Halo sucks, and everyone, or Halo's awesome, or whatever I have to say on it. I do like covering small games, and I do like being able to, uh, you know, promote things that I care about or promote things that I think are really cool. But at the same time, the show will stagnate and die if I do nothing but, you know, go into the itch.io or itch.io or however you pronounce it, archives, find a bunch of cool stuff and promote it because no one no one will keep watching the show if I do nothing but that. I, I have to balance that against, you know, a big budget, you know, fun game that, you know, everyone on YouTube wants to see me either praise or eviscerate. I'm desperately trying to figure out a way to transition to the, this video. Uh-huh. And I, I have been for the last, like, 15 minutes or so, and I can't think of a way. So I'm just going to put it this way. You're, the, the best I could come up with was you're, in terms of views on YouTube, your second highest video in response was your keep the politics out of my video games video. I have – a, you know, what the biggest regret I have about that video is that I was using Premiere Elements at the time, which doesn't allow you to re-import a timeline – from, you know, basically Premiere Pro lets you edit everything together in a timeline that has a set of properties, and you can take that entire edited timeline and bring it into another timeline and change those properties. So you can go from like a, you know, 1080p video to a, uh, I don't know, a 4.3, 640 by 480 video. I, for whatever reason, when I made that video, set the timeline up to be a, I want to say 1080i interlaced video, which is why it has that awkward artifacting all over it, and... It became my second highest viewed video, and it's just one of the worst examples of the kind of video I output because it's just so hideously cut together, and I feel really bad about that. But speaking as to its content, and this is why I was desperately looking for a better segue, because it also became like one of the bigger references basically because, what was it, two years ago, that was the key issue. Oh yeah, and it still still is. Video games are political by virtue that they have something in them and whatever they're saying. And I guess it became for a while became the go-to and emphasis of this because it was simple and easy to watch, and it was right there, and it had that great graphics that was just in your face. Keep your politics out of my video games. Quote. I wonder how many people either didn't click on it or disliked it just by looking at the title and then just oh this guy's an idiot and then and then downvoting it or disliking it or whatever. I don't know if I saw it referenced that often as, as like a, a centerpiece of that debate. I didn't get a lot of flack for it. I mean, I, I released it, I think, about a year before, you know, everything went down in 2014. So I, it was kind of an old video at the time, and it, by the time things started really hitting the fan. And I don't remember it being kicked around that much. I know it was occasionally linked to, linked once or twice, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm just remembering it, seeing more, because I see an old video pop up in my feed occasionally. Yeah, I mean, it's... Obviously, someone was watching it, because it's the second most... What is... Do you know what the first most watched? I actually don't know what the first most... Hotline Miami. Really? 
That's weird. That kind of surprised me, and that was going to be my next question, just by the virtue that it is 40,000 views higher than the politics one. That's bizarre. I actually didn't know that. I had no idea that a Hotline Miami is my most viewed video. For a while, it was uh, it was the Sonic the Hedgehog one, because it was basically a retrospective on all of Sonic, and, and a lot of people like that, but... That's still up there. But but that... Hotline Miami, really? That is... 181,000 views. Wow. I didn't... I honestly didn't know that. And I'm wrong. You keep the politics out of your videos. Actually, number three. Number two is Bioshock Infinite. That one, all, that one struck a nerve. That, that <laughs> Yeah. It always strikes a nerve. <laughs> but yeah, the keep your politics out of my video game one, I mean... The fact that it's a year older than 2014 speaks a lot to how I think a lot of this stuff has been background noise for a long time, longer than just all that stuff. And I don't know, it's it's something that's always bothered me. I mean, I saw this on message boards when I was in college 10 years ago about, you know, anyone trying to make any sort of a point, even before things were as charged as they are today, was basically laughed off and brushed off and like, yeah, it's just a game. And... That's just such a dismissive term, and, and I don't know, it, it always bugged me, and at some point, I don't remember what the impetus was, but I decided to make a whole video basically going, yeah, it's just a game, but it, it also is political. Have you ever thought of going back to a game that you've already done a video on? I, you did it with Life is Strange, but since that's episodic, I, I don't think that counts as much. Uh, yeah, actually, Life is Strange is one of the ones I kind of want to re-revisit. It's part of the crappy thing that I, I ended up sort of saddled with this format. I ended up with, well, not saddled with it. I chose it. It's not like anyone forced it on me. But <laughs> I, I, what I really need to do is, how do I phrase this? When I got started, again, I was really influenced by the likes of, you know, Lindsay Ellis or Kyle Calgren or, or uh, Todd in the Shadows, people who take one work and sort of do a full examination of the, of the whole work in its entirety and what it means to them or what they think it means or, or whether it succeeds, how it fails, how it does what it do. And that was sort of the format I was using format. I'm still using to this day is basically here is my video on X game. And what I need to learn to do, I think is instead of just sort of trying to do this 20 minute epic, all inclusive thing that does everything from historical context up through influences and what the game succeeds at, what it fails at and every random idea that's ever popped into my head relating to this one game to result in this, giant cornucopia of criticism that I just, it is my official, you know, codex of this game and I am done and I will never touch it forever. I need to instead say, you know, let's talk about, and I did this with Fallout, for example, let's talk about Fallout 4 and role-playing and how role-playing works within the context of Fallout 4. That way, if I ever want to go back to Fallout 4, it can be Fallout 4's broken main narrative, which is totally true, or Fallout 4's flirtation with user-created content, which could be its own essay. And that's really something I need to learn to do, is, is stop approaching these things holistically. My problem is I'm addicted to that idea of providing enough background context and enough, you know, here is how this game got made, that I end up spieling about the whole thing, and it becomes this definitive thing. And Life is Strange is one of the games I'd like to revisit, actually. I got a lot of justifiable flack for... Uh, my Life is Strange, my second Life is Strange video, and I'd like to go back and revisit it, talk a little bit more about the relationship between the two protagonists, and cover some of the side characters that I think I basically ignored in the interests of talking about the overall themes of the work, and basically be able to do a little bit more specialized stuff. So yeah, lots of games I'd, I'd like to go back and, and recover. I need to stop trying to cover the entirety of a game all the time. Do you have any any words to say about what you tried to codify as your shortwave transmissions, the shorter videos? Uh, uh, only that they failed. <laughs> <laughs> R 
really what I want to do, here's, here was and remains my goal for what a short tra- shortwave transmission w- should be if I could break myself of the habit of, of doing what I do. What it should be is closer to what, say, Total Biscuit is able to do when he just, like, hits record on a video and goes on a long spiel about whatever he's feeling. And it doesn't necessarily need to be short in terms of uh, length. My goal with them is short in terms of turnaround. I really wanted something that could be either a really tightly edited thing like my normal stuff, only it's a minute and a half long, or maybe a, a you know 20-minute long ramble, but a 20-minute long ramble that I could turn around in a, in a Sunday afternoon. That way I could have regularly delivered chunks of content to anyone w- that would want to watch, and Errant Signal could be the main long-form considered criticism that is tightly edited that is very, very traditionally what I do. My problem is I sit down to create one of these things and it just turns into an Aaron Signal episode that's maybe a minute and a half shorter and still takes me a week and a half to make. And that's the real problem with them. And that's why they've been a failure. I really need to be able to commit to myself to this idea of going out without a script and just rambling like I'm doing now, which I don't know if there's even an audience for, but we'll we'll see. Or basically just being able to convince myself to work within the confines of you have 400 words, 500 words, 600 words, not a three-page essay, 500 words, what do you want to say about this little tiny thing, go. And it's one of the problems of of being a YouTuber is that there's no, you don't have an editor. There's no one to tell you no. So as soon as I start going, but it could be a three-page essay, and I start going down that path, there's no one to smack my hand and and tell me not to do that. And it just, that has been the problem with shortwave transmissions. It's just, I want something Mm -hmm. that can get rapid content out quickly, something that really needs to happen if you want a successful YouTube channel. And it's just something I've struggled with. I feel like I commiserate with you a lot on the fact of not having an editor or someone to tell you no when you come up with an idea. Yeah. it's Because <laughs> the thing is, it's even worse when you think, this sounds cool, and then after you finished it and you publish it, it says, was that really as cool as I thought it was? It's too late now. Yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it really is a problem with YouTube. I, I really, really... Don't like the, there's a lot of this movement towards new media and YouTube is the future and the you know the whole print versus video thing that's been going on over the past couple of years and I don't know if YouTubers are aware of how much they're missing out by not having an editor not having someone to maybe smack their hand bit back or or even just have a, a, an editorial voice to guide them a little bit it's something that I'm acutely aware of because I I'm friends with and follow so many games writers that, you know, speak praises of of their editors and working with people that help make their pieces stronger. And I sit here looking back at some of my stuff going, why, why did no one tell me not to do that? That was a terrible idea, whatever it was. I, I am in print, and I'm still in that same situation. So yeah, oh God. go back to rewind a little. Uh, how do you choose what games to make video on? What are you looking for in the game or in your reaction to a game? mostly just looking for a reaction to a game. There's a lot of games I play that are serviceable games that for whatever reason I just don't have anything insightful or cool to say about. Like, I am currently working my way through Salt and Sanctuary, which is like this really fun Bloodborne slash Dark Souls in 2D game. And about my only real insight is about how it really highlights how Castlevania is sort of basically a proto-Dark Souls in the sense that, like, take Castlevania or Symphony of the Night and make it more about defense than offense, and you've got Salt and uh, Sanctuary. But that I can't stretch that out, right? Like, that's not a video. That's, that's a pithy tweet. I can't turn that into a video essay. So really what I'm looking for and how I decide on what games to cover is 
do I have a response to it? Do I have a strong emotional response to it, either because of nostalgia or because I hate it or because I love it and I need to share my findings? The other thing that really uh, drives my decision-making is what have I done lately? Like I said, 2015 taught me a lot in terms of I cannot go from you know, small indie game to small indie game to small indie game to small indie game if I want the channel to grow. So it's really more like, you know, I just did Burnout Paradise, which is kind of old and kind of retro and kind of big name. So I think maybe the next thing might be kind of indie, a little bit more artsy, a little bit less, a, a little bit less crowd pleasing. But then if I do one or two or three of those, then it's going to be time to be like, well, uh, the new Doom game's coming out. Time to cover the new Doom game. And that's sort of how I judge it is basically, you know, what have I done lately and how can I, how can I simultaneously do the artsy stuff that I want to do while also maintaining the growth of the channel. Also, I was I was going to ask, given the release of some of the videos, may have to go a little further back, but given their release to the release date, like The Last of Us and Bioshock Infinite, it was obvious you were going to have some reaction to those games. Yes. Given their just everything around them and they are that big budget trying to be about something. Have you ever gotten like a, a video game that was big budget you thought you were going to have a reaction to? <laughs> spend all that time playing the game and then realize, oh, that was a waste. Yes, I did, actually. <laughs> the, the one that pops immediately into my head, because I was so ready to sink my teeth into it, was Battlefield Hardline. I was so ready to rip that game apart, and it is it is so milquetoast. It's not without sin, but like I was looking for red meat to sink my teeth into and just go like, oh my god, this game is just awful. And and I play it, and it's it's basically... Like, what if Law and & Order and Miami Vice slowly became a cartoon is basically what it is. Like, it starts out with actual police work, and you could probably do a video essay on the first three, maybe four levels, where it starts out as, you know, actual police work, you're going into poverty-stricken neighborhoods, you're, you're you know, there, there's a lot of, not necessarily stereotyping, but a, a lot of questionable things happen in the first two or three levels in that game. But at some point, you're basically fighting the corrupt cop that is stealing, basically helping the drug runners, and you're in an AC-130 airplane firing down on a tank. And it, at a certain point, it stops being a meaningful commentary about police and starts just being a battlefield game, right? Like, it stops being this thing that you might actually have a strong opinion on because it's relatable and topical and something that, you know, that, that is something that worth is worth discussing critically and becomes this big bombastic cartoon destruction fantasy world and not even in a meaningful way right like it's not even like you know talking about police police militarization or anything it's just straight up like you start watching a law and order uh, episode and then you go up to make a sandwich and you sit back down and you know uh, transformers is on and and you just it's just that's what happened it just turned into transformers the movie and you went from something that kind of feels relatable to something that's just so bombastic and over the top that it's meaningless and that's what happened with Battlefield Hardline and me. And I went in there really ready to to have a strong opinion. And I came out going, yeah, it's got issues, but I just, I can't. In this particular circumstance is because you have like the likes of Austin Walker who wrote, it's got to be like a 2000 brilliant like pre-review of it. And do you feel it's like also it's you who couldn't like find anything interesting into because of who you are oh totally oh totally 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 like i i was ready to look at it and tear it apart but all i had was basically me you know white dude saying this made me kind of uncomfortable and you know the, the first three levels of this game are kind of vaguely racist but i can't speak the way like austin walker can speak of to a lot of the more subtle things at play and and 
speak with the sort of pathos and, and sort of the, the, the authority on that stuff. I, I absolutely couldn't. It, it was basically, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, what other, like, uh, cr- do when, because I assume you watch other critical videos on video games or re- and read other people's, how much does that influence what or how you review a subject? I don't know if it influences what I review. Uh, what I review is very much whether I have something to say about it. How I review, I, I think... I think it all changes the discourse. I think reading a lot of, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. There's basically two ways to read that question. One way is like, how directly does the selection of things I watch change the way I talk about games? And the other thing is sort of, does watching other people influence me at all? And and yes, definitely that, that is the case. Like every piece I read changes the way I I look at a lot of games. And, and I don't know if there's a lot of, I'm trying to think of a good example. I can't think of anything. I'm sorry. I blew this question. <laughs> well, the beginner's guide where you directly had to reference the fact that people thought it was real and were trying to wonder if it was ethical to keep. That, I think, was a bit of a special circumstance just because yeah. it was... That's probably a more outrageous yeah. example of what I was trying to ask. But... Yeah. I, I do read stuff. like I do and I don't. It's It's a weird situation, right? Because I don't want to read anything that then I subconsciously pick up and then basically half plagiarize, not intentionally, but without thinking about it, just because somebody planted the seed of, hey, this one mechanic could actually really represent this, and then I carry that forward, and then you know I reference that, and then suddenly now I'm an accidental plagiarist. But at the same time, it's not like everybody has to have their own completely 100% unique take on something and, and being able to read someone else's work and internalize it and, and profess the things you think are right about that work, as long as you're open and honest about it, is, is valuable and good. So I do read a lot of stuff. I can't think of any really great examples off the top of my head. I know I referenced Maddie Meyer's stuff when I did the Hotline Miami episode. There are other episodes where I think I mention some writers directly, but I, I definitely read a lot of critics and, and watch a lot of other critics' stuff, and it does help inform how I do my job. Is there anything else about Aaron Signal and your channel in general or YouTubing that you feel I haven't asked about, but you feel you have something to say? Uh, nothing that comes to my mind immediately. It's an interesting, weird niche of film criticism or film game criticism. criticism. I keep making that mistake. I. <laughs> I write the words game criticism all the time, but for some reason the only words I say are, are film criticism. Although that that might be one of the points I, I would make is, I mean, we touched on this a little bit with the lack of an editor, but games writing in general is often kind of lonely. Games, YouTube videoing can be really soul-crushingly lonely sometimes. And uh, that's that's sort of an interesting thing that I didn't really know going into it. And finally, this is how you can always tell that we're near the end. What is your favorite video game of all time? Oh, God. I didn't know that that would be on here. I hate doing favorites. Oh, God. This is becoming a sort of sadistic pleasure on my part. Because <laughs> <laughs> everyone hates this question. I Favorite in what sense? <laughs> all up to you. God, I have to pick one. That's the, I, I can think of a million different games that could qualify... But I guess I'll go with a really boring conservative answer, and I'll just say Doom is probably my favorite. It's perhaps the most directly influential game that I've played on the aesthetic of games that I like, the sort of games that I like. I like first-person stuff a lot, not just shooters, but first-person almost anything. I like that as perspective. I dig the game feel of Doom. I like how personal it feels. I like its, what would at this point pass as really, really lo-fi aesthetics. 
I, yeah, I'll go with Doom. There, there's a bunch of other games that could that could maybe reach that level, but I'll go with Doom. All right, pimp your stuff. Uh, yeah, I'm Chris this is Franklin, and I make Errant Signal. You can see me on, I think my YouTube channel is youtube.com slash camster, but I don't know how YouTube URLs work, and uh, at com. Patreon. Patreon, yes. Also, <laughs> I also have a Patreon that I believe is patreon.com slash Signal. All one word. And if you enjoyed this podcast and enjoy listening to the interviews we have here on the Critical Distance Confab, please rate us on iTunes. We'd much appreciate it. And if you like this and all our other projects at Critical Distance, you can take a look at our Patreon, patreon.com slash critdistance, and feel free to support us if you can. Thank you, Chris, for coming on. No problem. It's been a blast. Yep. <laughs>